0: I remember uh, my junior year in high school, my dad came home uh, from work and he said, Hey Dave, good news. Um, I got you a job. Uh, That was interesting because I wasn't looking for a job, and so that didn't feel like good news. I didn't know I needed a job, but Dad said, you need a job. Now's the time. I got you a job, and good news is you start tomorrow, and so it was interesting. Both things that started with him saying good news did not feel like good news to me at the time, but he said, you got a job. You start tomorrow, and you're going to go work with my friend named John, and so John was a guy that went to our church, awesome guy at the time. He was in his early 60s. And John was what I would refer to as a serial entrepreneur. He started companies and businesses and projects. He, he loved to start things. He loved to try new things. Just an amazing man of God. But my dad said, hey, you're going to work for John tomorrow at this little sign shop that he started. Just kind of imagine like a smaller version of a Kinko's. That's, that's what what it was. And I thought, that's not what I want to do. Like That's not how I want to spend my afternoons, but Dad said, you're going to go do it. And so I started the next day for work, having no idea that I was getting ready to step into such an unbelievable blessing. It would become one of the greatest blessings of my life, getting to work for John. And so I start working for John at this little sign company, having no idea what I'm doing. He starts showing me the ropes, and about two months into this job, John says, hey, Dave, I want to promote you. I want to make you the general manager of this business. And I thought, that's crazy. Like, I haven't done that good of a job. I don't really like the job. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. There's people that are older than me that have been here longer than I have. Like, can't you promote them? He says, no, I'm going to promote you. Um, Not because you deserve it, just because I want to do this. I want to teach you how to do this job. And so all of a sudden, I find myself in this new position uh, that I never saw myself in. And you can just imagine how some of the employees around me um, kind of received that news when they found out this guy that was like a third of their age, who'd been there two months, who didn't know what he's doing, didn't really like the job, was now going to be their boss. And so, you know, they didn't all love that news. They didn't love uh, kind of that declaration that had come down from John. And so, yeah, instantly, there's a couple of the employees that decide, hey, they're not going to do what I need them to do. They're not going to show up the way that I need to sh- need them to show up. And immediately, I'm overwhelmed with this reality that I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, that was true before I had the promotion. But all of a sudden, I'm just like painfully aware I have no idea what I'm doing, and so uh, kind of a part of our routine was every Thursday, John would come in, and he and I would go to lunch together, and we'd sit down, and we'd just talk life, and we'd talk work, and all those things, and so in the midst of some of this conflict, I'm like, John, I need you to tell me what to do. Like, I need you to tell me how to fix this problem with the employees, I need you to teach me how to build a team, teach me, and what I wanted John to do was to give me the to-do list, to tell me what to do, but every day, or every week, he'd come in, and he wouldn't tell me what to do. Instead, he'd spend that time reminding me of who I was, and I'm like, John, I don't need you to tell me wh- who I am. Like, tell me what to do. And he's like, no, I need to tell you who you are. And he'd look at me and say, hey, you're you're decently smart, and, and, and you're pretty self-motivated, and I think you're an okay leader, but with a little work, you can become a, a, a better leader. But more than anything, I've made you the boss. I need you to act like that. And over and over and over, I would want him to tell me what to do. Instead, he would just come to me and say, hey, no, this is who you are Because John knew something like deep in his heart that he was trying to impart to me. And that is, unless my identity had been settled, the responsibility that he was trying to give me, I could never handle it. Like my identity had to be settled in order for the responsibility to be handled. He knew that unless I really saw myself as I was, it didn't matter what to-do list he would give me. It didn't matter how many pep talks he would give me. I would go in there. I wouldn't be able to do it. Like He needed me to know who I was in order for me to be about the work that he called me to do. It wasn't until years later, when I started reading through the Scriptures, kind of with a fresh set of eyes, that I realized that John didn't get that from some leadership book. He didn't get it just because he was wise. He got it from the Scriptures. You see this all throughout the Bible as you read through, that there's this uh, undeniable connection between our identity and our sense of responsibility in the kingdom of God, that those two things are connected. And unless our identity in Christ is settled, our responsibility in the kingdom of God can never be handled that we'll hold on to it for the wrong reasons, we'll, we'll, we'll wield it in the wrong ways, that our identity has to be settled first. And so you see this all throughout the scriptures. You know, when God comes to Adam and Eve and he comes to them as partners in creation, he wants to, to, to use them to do great things in the world before he gives them any responsibilities. He settles their identity. He says, you are made of my image, and he blesses them, he loves them, speaks that word of identity. And then he releases them into their kingdom responsibility. You see him do this with Abraham and Sarah before they had, had any kids. He looks at them. He says, This is who you are. You're a father of nations. You're a mother of nations. Like, uh, people groups are going to come from you. Before he gave them a to do list of what they needed to do for those people to come from them, he said, Here is who you are. He settled their identity before he handed out the responsibility. It's what happened with David before he had ever led a people, before he had governed a nation, before he had slayed a giant, before he'd done any of that. God came to him as a young kid through the prophet and said, You are a king. His identity was settled then his responsibility could be handled. You see this with the disciples, this ragtag group of ordinary people like you and I, who migrated towards Jesus because of just this love and energy and power that was coming from him and they didn't understand it, they're sitting around him and when he's giving that famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and I love what Jesus does. He looks at this group of people, and before he hands out any responsibility, before he gives them a to-do list, he says, you're the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. And he knows some of them were like looking over their shoulders, like, who's he talking to? Like, because they, they probably couldn't see it, but this is what God does. He settles our identity so that way we can handle our kingdom responsibility. It's what happens even in Jesus's life. 30 years old, steps into the ministry, Jesus, the Son of God, filled with and baptized in the Spirit of God, lived a perfect life. And yet before he heals a sick person, forgives a sin, dies on the cross, raised from the dead, before he does any of that work, God looks at him and he settles his identity once and for all. He says, you are my beloved son and you am well pleased. And then comes the work of ministry. And you can see it's over and over and over in the kingdom of God. This is the way it operates. It's what I began to learn years ago in that little sign shop under John that unless my identity is settled, the responsibility that I'm meant to carry can never be handled. And it's interesting because in a year like the one that we've just come out of where so much of what we do has been turned upside down and has been wrecked, have you noticed that there is indeed a connection between what we do and our understanding of who we are? think about one of my good friends, I was with him last week, and he was talking about how this time a year ago, his job looks completely different than it does today. I mean, he's not doing any of the stuff he's doing a year ago. Basically, his career has totally shifted because of what happened in the middle of the pandemic. And he said, hey, Dave, there was this, this moment where all of the activity that I was used to doing, all of the responsibility that I was used to carrying, it had shifted so drastically. He said, I lost my sense of self. When I didn't know what to do, I no longer knew who I was. And he said, so every morning I'd wake up and I'd pray and go, God, like, like show me what to do, show me what to do, show me what to do. And maybe you've prayed that this year, you know, as you're trying to figure out how to homeschool your kids and how to teach from home, or as you're trying to figure out how to be a university student in the midst of social distancing, or maybe you're trying to figure out how to be a freelancer or a musician when the venues are closed or whatever it is. My friend was wrestling with this identity crisis going, man, what I do has been shaken, so who I am feels shaken shaky. He said, but Dave, there's this turning point for me. And I, said, I said, what was the turning point? He said, the turning point for me, he said, I quit asking God to show me what to do, and I started asking him to remind me of who I was in Jesus. He said, I just started waking up every morning and said, hey, would you, would you remind me of who I am? And he began to describe this process, this thing that I learned 20 years ago in John's shop, is that until our identity is settled— The responsibility that God wants to give you in the kingdom can never be handled. We'll turn it into legalism, we'll turn it into an idol, we'll turn it into some sort of performance until our understanding of who we are has been settled. Our sense of responsibility in the kingdom of God can't be handled. And so I go, here we are, you know, coming into this season of prayer and fasting, and this year everything looks different than it did last year. You know, the way we're meeting looks different. The way that you're working from home looks different. The way that we're gathering in community looks different. Everything looks different. And it would be easy to come into this season and to spend the next 30 days going, God, show us what to do. Show us what to do. Show us what to do. And I'm just telling you, there's nothing wrong with those prayers, but I think the better posture is to come into this season and say, hey, God, in light of who you are, show me who I am. In light of who you are, show me who I am. Because unless your identity has been settled, you can probably finish it at home, then the responsibility God wants to give you in the kingdom cannot be handled. God wants to do something in you before he wants to do something through you. And this is what I love about the book of Acts. This is what we're going to do together over the next uh, month or so. Uh, Each morning, we're just going to look at a passage of Scripture together. And we're going to pray some of these realities into our lives and into our church and into the city together. But I love the book of Acts because I've never really seen it this way until earlier this week. The book of Acts starts out not as this declaration of what we're supposed to do. The book of Acts starts out as this reminder of who we are in Christ— because of the grace of Jesus, because of the cross of Jesus, because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the kindness of Jesus, it is this reminder of who we get to be together in Jesus. And so, if if, if you've never read the Bible before, maybe you don't know the story that precedes this moment here in the Book of Acts. It's a beautiful story, you know. Right before the Book of Acts are the four gospels that record the life and ministry of Jesus. And part of that life and ministry of Jesus was he got a group of ordinary men and women around him to be his apprentices, his followers, his disciples, whatever language you would use there. And these men and women, they got a front row seat to the most incredible reality. They they got to look their creator in the eyes. They got to hear his voice. They got to hear him tell a joke. I mean, can you imagine Jesus telling a joke? Best, best joke teller ever. He knows the perfect punchline. He knows, has great timing, just, just amazing. They got to see him heal the sick and raise the dead and calm the storms. They got to see him weep in the garden of Gethsemane. They got to see him teach the scriptures. They got to see him dismantle the religious system of the day and the political system of the day with his wisdom. They, they saw him do all of it. It's so beautiful. And yet in the midst of it, they they felt the heartache of watching him crucified on a cross as they scattered. They felt the pain and confusion of wondering if they had put their bets on the wrong guy for those three days when he's in the grave, not knowing how the story would end. They felt the surprise when he rose from the dead. Even though he had said he would do that, they couldn't get their minds around it. And then for 40 straight days, he teaches them about the kingdom of God. That's what leads up to the book of Acts. And you come to Acts chapter 1, and one of the the questions that I always love to to ask when I'm reading a story in the scriptures is, is I just ask the Lord, hey, what would it have felt like to have been in this moment? What's the emotion that I would have felt if I was in the pages And I think if I had to just assign one emotion to Acts chapter 1, it would be confusion, which I know maybe that's not what you're expecting. But I go, man, they had to have felt confused. They'd been on this emotional roller coaster with Jesus. he had just risen from the dead, spent 40 days with them, and he's just reminded them that he's getting ready to return to heaven. They're going, wait, this is not the way we expected the story to end. Like, we thought this is where the music rolls and the credits come, and all of a sudden, like, we just enter into the the happily ever after kind of moment. And Jesus says, no, this, this story's not done yet. And I want you to notice what he's going to do here. He is going to impart to them a reminder about who they are before he tells them what they need to go do. Now, kind of my warning for you is I've always read Acts chapter 1 through the lens of responsibility. But it just struck me this week as I I I was meditating on this scripture is that over and over and over, Jesus and the angels, they're going to speak about identity because unless your identity is settled, you can never carry and handle the responsibility that God has for you. So let's start in verse 6 together. It says this. says, then they gathered around Jesus, the disciples. They asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, we're not going to stop here too long, but I want you to notice something. Um, These disciples, they were good students of the Old Testament, They had read the prophecies. They knew what the Messiah was supposed to accomplish. And so the disciples, are they're looking at what Jesus had done in the cross and uh, through the resurrection, and they went, okay, some of that's been fulfilled, but there's these other things that you haven't done yet. Is this the time that you're going to establish your physical kingdom on earth? And and so they're asking this question, and I love it. Jesus doesn't make fun of them. Uh, He doesn't blow them off. He understands that when they were reading the Word and when they looked at the world, they saw a gap there. And so some of you maybe feel, you go, okay, I know Jesus has forgiven us of our sins, he's raised from the dead, but when I look at the world, there's so much brokenness, so much pain, something still isn't right. And you're right about that, because the work of Christ isn't totally finished yet. That happens in the second coming. And so they're asking these questions about, wait, hey, are you gonna finish everything that's been promised, everything we've seen? he said, hey, that's not the conversation for today. It's an important question. It's not the conversation for today. And then he begins to just impart this identity. Look at verse seven. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as Jesus was going, when suddenly two men, uh, two angels dressed in white stood before them. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has has been taken from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. So much we could unpack here, but I just want you to notice these statements of identity that Jesus is going to speak over his disciples. I mean, he's getting ready to leave them in charge of of the family business. He's kind of giving them the keys to the shop. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't do what your mom would do when she would leave you at home with your siblings on vacation. He doesn't give the to-do list, you know, water the plants and take care of the dogs and get the mail and make sure you get your sister to to school. He doesn't leave a to-do list. He looks at his disciples He says, let me remind you of who you are. (laughs) He says, this is who you are. And I want you to notice this. Uh, Look at verse 8. First statement he makes, he says, you, he says, you are going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. And literally, when the presence of God comes into your life, you are going to become power-filled witnesses. He says, this is who you are. And don't you know, they're going, wait, we're, Jesus, don't you know, we're just the guys that sold you out. (laughs) We're the guys and gals that abandoned you. We're the ones that were not there in your moment of greatest need. Like, are you sure that's who we are? And he says, hey, you are going to receive power. And when you do, you are going to be made powerful witnesses to the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't look at them and say, hey, here's who you are. your new religious social club. You're, you're the new moral majority. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, hey, hey, you're the people. They're going to come together and gather on Sundays and read old stories about what the world used to be like when God was here, sing some songs, and try to keep your life That's not what he says. He looks, he says, you will be powerful witnesses. That's who you are. It's a statement of identity. He knew if their identity was not settled, the responsibility would never be handled. You know, there are other moments where Jesus said, hey, I want you to go share, and, and he's certainly going to call them into responsibility. But I want you to notice his words here are hey, this is who you are. (laughs) And because this is who you are, powerful witnesses, witnessing is what you do. This is who you are. And because this is who you are, this is what you're going to do. And as we read through the book of Acts for the next 30 days, you're going to see all of the ways that the power of God would show up in their life when they were ready to make much of Jesus. You know, sometimes the power of God would show up as they were speaking about Jesus, and people would come to believe, and they, they would give their life to Christ. Sometimes the Holy Spirit would show up in a moment of weakness when they were being persecuted or suffering or sick or dying, and, and they would make much of Jesus in that moment, and people would come to Christ. Sometimes the power of God would show up through signs and wonders as they'd pray for the sick and they'd be healed. Sometimes it was in a moment of worship, you know, where Paul is in prison, and he's worshiping, and all of these, these uh, prisoners are listening in, and they give their lives to Christ as watching him worship. Sometimes the power of God would show up just in the way that they were living. I love the way that the Christians were described in the city of Antioch in Acts chapter 13. It says, man, they were were living into the ways of Jesus, just the way of life. There's power in it. And this is what Jesus said. He says, this is who you are. He says, you're not just church attenders. You're not just moral people. You're not just kind Southern folks trying to to raise a good family or trying to be a good college. He says, no, you, by the grace of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you are a powerful witness. Your life is the canvas upon which the love story of God has been painted for the whole world to see. And sometimes that love story is going to be painted in your strength, sometimes in your weakness, sometimes through your words and sometimes through your weakness. But God is going to show up. He's going to show up and he's going to move in ways that you can never expect. Like we experienced this this week as a family. I can hardly talk about it because it's still too raw and close, but uh, last weekend, our family was on vacation and my oldest son, Mike, he's 10 years old, had a terrible accident and uh, severely broke his arm and we ended up in an emergency room and it was a scary moment. We're there in the emergency room, and they say, hey, he's gonna have to have emergency surgery, and then when you guys get home in four to six weeks, he's gonna have, to have another surgery on this broken arm, and just devastating uh, as a parent, just watching your son in that pain. He's going through all of that. And so that morning, I'm sitting in the hospital with him. Uh, he's getting ready to go back in operation, and I'm just—I'm praying, and I'm crying, and I'm just feeling all sorts of stuff. And he's in a great mood because of the morphine and because he's got a resilient spirit. And and uh, if you know my son Micah, he is, like, so extroverted. He just loves people. And so every nurse, every doctor that came in, he just called them by their first name. And and I'm like, man, did you mem- memorize everybody's names? He's like, Dad, they have name tags. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. You know, and he's, he's talking to everybody. And this, this one doctor came in who had been on the night shift who He wasn't even working, but he wanted to come back just to check in on Micah. He sits down, he begins talking uh, with my son. And my, my son just makes a statement that just all of a sudden I've begun to, to just see the book of Acts just playing out. My son looked at me and he said, hey, it's so cool. You have a name from the Bible, and I have a name from the Bible, and my dad has a name from the Bible. Isn't that cool that all of us— have a story that starts in the Bible. And this, this doctor in Idaho gets real nervous. I can tell him, like, this is not the conversation he expected to have with a 10-year-old. And, Jesus, and Micah just starts talking to him about Jesus. He just starts talking to him about his faith, and he starts asking him all of these questions. And guys, I don't know how to explain it, but the power of the Holy Spirit was upon that moment. Why? Because for whatever reason, my son saw the opportunity— for his life, even in a moment of weakness, to become the canvas upon which the love story of God is being painted for this doctor in Idaho to see. Now, that morning before the accident, my family didn't wake up going, hey, what's our strategy for sharing the gospel with the medical community here in Idaho today? Like (laughs) that That wasn't on the radar, but this is what Jesus promises. He says, you will be witnesses wherever you go. You have power. And if the desire of your life is to make much of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will show up to help you do that. He'll be your helper. It's who you are. Unless our identity is settled, the responsibility can never be handled. He says, "You are powerful witnesses." But he doesn't stop there. He says, "You're powerful witnesses who have been entrusted with this like far-reaching purpose." You're a powerful witness who has been entrusted with this far-reaching purpose. Like your life's going to matter. Look back at verse eight. He says, "You will see power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem." That's where they lived. In Judea, that's the county around them. In Samaria, that's the place none of them wanted to go, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus looks at this group of ordinary men and women who had all abandoned them. He makes this statement, here's who you are, even though you're not qualified, even though you don't feel like it, here's who you actually are by the grace and the power of God. And it's not going to be limited just to your family members or to your neighbors, but it's actually going to go to the nations. He looks at these men and women who had never traveled more than 60 miles from the place they were born. they had never seen a car, never stepped on a plane, never heard of the internet, didn't know about any of those things. And Jesus says, I am going to use your life to scatter the story of faith. And guys, here we are thousands of years later as a testimony to the truthfulness of Jesus. We're here as the reality that, that God blew the seeds of their faith further than they could have ever imagined. We don't know how God wants to use our lives. But what we know is that he's going to use our lives when we desire to be used by God to make much of him. He says, this is who you are, your powerful witnesses, with the far-reaching purpose in your neighborhood, in your city, to the ends of the earth, with your workplace, with your friends, with doctors and hospitals and cities you'll probably never go to again. This is the way the kingdom of God works. Think about a friend of mine who's several years older than me. He's telling me the story about how his family became followers of Jesus. It started 46 years ago when his mom and dad were, were pregnant with him. And his parents were in this, this tough moment in their marriage. Things weren't really working out for them. And so kind of in a desperate plea, his, his mom convinced his dad into going to this little revival meeting that was happening at a small Methodist church in their small rural town just down the street from where they lived. It's kind of her last-ditch effort. She had gone to church a little bit as a kid. She's like, maybe, maybe God can reach into this mess that we're in and save us, <laughs> so this, this, this mom of my friend gets her husband, and they show up. She's six or seven months pregnant to this little church, this revival meeting on a Tuesday night. And my friend's dad is having none of it, doesn't want to be there. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. You're sitting in an at-home worship gathering, and you're there because the girl that invited you or the friend that's invited you or your roommates have it on, and you don't even want to be there. But this is where my friend's dad was just kind of sitting in one of those moments, and he, he's like, I'm done listening to the preacher. And so he gets up in the middle of the sermon, the small little country church, begins to walk down the only aisle, which was the center aisle, out the back of the door. He's going to the car to get in the car to drive home, come pick, up, come pick up his wife later. And as he almost gets to the car, he hears somebody call his name, and he turns around, and it's this, it's this little preacher from out of town. Who He's like, how does this guy know my name? finds out later that his wife gave him the name. <laughs> He saw this guy leave in the middle of the sermon. He just felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to chase him down. He chases him down and he looks at my friend's dad in the parking lot on a Tuesday night in a small country little town and he says, Hey, God has a destiny for your life. He's marked your life. He's trying to save your marriage. He he wants to save you. He he wants to do something in your kid's life who's not even been born yet. Do not run away from the voice of God, the invitation of God in this moment. And my friend told me the story of his dad falling on his knees in that parking lot getting saved walking back in, hearing the rest of the sermon, everybody trying to figure out what just happened in the parking lot. And for the last 46 years, my dad's friend, my friend's dad, there we go, my friend's dad has led his family into the ways of Jesus. And my friend has grown up to be an incredibly faithful man of God who's done so many incredible things all across his city, through his church, all across the nation, and the nations. It's just amazing what God's done. So last year, that that, that preacher who preached that revival sermon 46 years earlier was driving through my friend's town. My friend found out about it, and he gave him a call. This guy had long since retired, and they had the joy of sitting down over a cup of coffee, and he said, let me tell you what happened after that moment in the parking lot 46 years ago. He said, look at the seeds of your faith. And he just begins to tell the story of how God had worked through his dad and through each of his siblings and all the things that was happening all over the earth. And he said, this guy was just weeping. Why? Because he had no idea just how far-reaching the purposes of God would be for his life. Guys, you have no idea, you have no idea that little moment of faithfulness. You're just, you're all of a sudden you're a homeschool parent and you're just trying to blow the seeds of faith into your kids while not killing them, teaching them math and reading and all this stuff while working from home. You have no idea what God's doing right now. You're a college student doing stuff online and you're, you're trying to stay connected with your friends and you, you're, you're texting with that one person about the questions of faith and doubt and you have no idea what God's doing. Listen, Jesus doesn't say, hey, make much of yourself. Reach the ends of the earth. He says, no, this is who you are because of who I am. You're a powerful witness. Yeah. And you've got a far reaching purpose to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And then Jesus returns to heaven. You can just imagine that moment. I love verse 11. The angels come down, and they're going to give this third declaration of identity. The angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Which I think, honestly, is kind of a dumb question. Like, I don't know if we're allowed to say that or not, but I said it, you know, like, why are we looking into the sky? Well, Jesus, just Peter Pan, straight up into the sky. Like, I've never seen anybody do that before. Don't know if he's coming back, like, right now? Is it going to be a week? Is it going to be a year? Like— He shot into the air. That's why we're looking in the air. Like, I would have loved to have just—you know Peter was just giving the angels lip right here. He's like, here's why we're looking. But I love what the angels say. They said, the same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I want you to notice this. Jesus declared, he says, you will be powerful witnesses— With a far-reaching purpose. And then the angels show up, and they build on that testimony of their identity. And this is what they say, and you will be compelled by an unshaking promise. You'll be compelled by an unshaking promise. They said, why are you standing here? You shouldn't be standing here. You should be getting about the mission of God. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. The angel said, that promise that he's coming back is the reason your feet are going to move forward. The promise that he's coming back is the reason that you're going to use your time the way you use it, and your money the way that you use it, and your relationships the way that you use it. The promise that he's coming back is going to be the thing that's going to compel you into this radical adventure of life. You're not just a power-filled witness, and, and you don't just have a far-reaching purpose. You are a person that has been compelled into the adventurous life of God by the promise that Jesus is going to return. I remember years ago when I was working in that, that little shop for John, you know, after I kind of got the hang of the business, I had no, no idea. What days he was going to come into the office and what days he wouldn't. Eventually, it got to where he'd come in once a week or once every other week. But because I didn't know when he was going to come in, I decided I was going to treat every day as though that was the day he was coming. So I'd make sure the shop was clean and the customers were cared for and the books were up to date and the work was excellent. Why? Because I did not want my master to return to find that I had not done diligently the thing he'd entrusted me with. I love this. Jesus looks at them, and he doesn't leave them with this crazy to-do list. He imparts to them this reminder of who they are, powerful witnesses with far-reaching purpose, compelled by the promise that Christ is going to come. And so we don't sit idly by. We don't fall asleep on the job. We sit here and we say, hey, Jesus, this month in prayer and fasting, would you tend to our hearts? Hey, Jesus, would you do it only you could do? Hey, Jesus, would you renew a sense of sensitivity in me to your Holy Spirit? Would you renew in, in me a sense of hunger for my friends that don't yet know you? Jesus, do whatever you need to do in me and through me, but do it from a place of identity, not just responsibility. And so as we enter into this, this month of fasting and prayer, I go, this is the thing that I believe that God is inviting us to do, that like the disciples, we fix our eyes on Christ, and before we ask him to give us the to-do list, we just say, hey, as we're looking to you, your grace, your mercy, I go, what kind of God would turn to the ones that had betrayed him? What kind of God would turn to them, forgive them, fill them, commission them, and send them? I go, our God, that's what kind of God. Our gracious, loving, amazing God, that's what he's done. You know, as I was reflecting on these statements of identity that Jesus speaks, I kept just wrestling with, okay, Lord, but but how is that identity actually settled in us. It's, it's, it's amazing that you offer that, that truth to us. But how is our identity as powerful witnesses with far-reaching purposes compelled by the promises of God, like, how does it actually take root in us? And here's the thing that's so kind of discouraging for me is there's nothing I can say or do this morning to help you feel rooted in your identity. Like, I can't preach that into you. The only way your identity is settled is if you choose to prioritize your life around the things that Jesus prioritized his life around. Because it was in that place of priority that his identity was settled. Jesus, the Son of God, he'd wake up in the mornings before anybody else. He had more to do than you, I promise. (laughs) He had a way bigger job description than you, I promise. He had way more people clamoring for his attention than you, I promise. But Jesus would wake up early in the morning hours and he'd pray and he'd seek the heart of the Father and he'd read the scriptures and he would fast and he'd prioritize the presence of the Father. I go, man, if Jesus needed that, don't we need that? And then he'd go from that time with the Lord and he'd get in community. He'd he'd get with his his brothers and his sisters, his disciples, and they'd strengthen each other and they would bolster each other up in the faith and they'd speak words of life and encouragement. And then and only then would they turn their eyes on a hurting, broken, demon-possessed world and say, now let's do the work that you've called us to do. And it was in that place of obedience, his priority with the Father, his priority with the community of faith, his priority of the mission of God, it was in that place of obedience that his identity as the Son of God was strengthened and solidified. It's not because of what he did, it's because of who he was. But as he leaned into who he was, it pushed him towards what he did because those two things are always connected. And what I found in my life is anytime I quit prioritizing any of those. If I don't prioritize my time with the Lord, if I don't prioritize my time in community, if I don't prioritize my mission into the world, then my understanding of who I am in God begins to shake. And so this month of prayer and fasting every morning, we're going to get up early together. We're going to read the Scriptures. Join us online tomorrow. We're going to get up early. We're going to read the Scriptures. We're going to pray. We're going to seek each other out in in the Scriptures. And then, and only then, will we go into the mission together. So let's go all in. You know, maybe you're joining us this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, and you know that your identity has never been established as a child of God. It's not too late. Just send us a message this morning, share at ethoschurch.org. It'll come to one of our pastors, and we'll reach out to you. We'd love to help you take that step at the beginning of this month, for you to become a follower of Jesus, to be filled with the Spirit of God, to be anchored in your new identity as a child of God. For some of you, you're followers of Jesus but you've got distracted this year. Your work got turned upside down. Your marriage got turned upside down. Your community got turned upside down. Your rhythms got turned upside down. And as your activity changed, your understanding of your identity was shaken. And so this is a month to fix your eyes on Jesus again and say, hey, in light of who you are, show me who I am. Unless our identity has been settled, our responsibility in the kingdom can't be handled. Father, I thank you for who you are. And because of your graciousness, because of your power, because of your kindness, you've showed us who we are. It always starts with you. And so, Lord, this morning, we thank you for who you are. And as we come into this month, would you remind us of who we are in light of you? God, some of us are not yet followers of Jesus. God, would you reveal to those of us uh, who are not in good standing with you, that we are sinners condemned apart from Christ, but God, in that moment of revelation, would you illuminate the beauty of Jesus and would you invite them into the family? Call them into the family. God, for those whose sense of self has been shaken in the midst of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, God, fix our eyes upon you in this month of prayer and fasting. Steady our feet, Lord, as you send us into your purposes. In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks.